You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I'm still speaking to you from the Code Conference in lovely Arizona. This is another conversation I had on stage. This one is with A.G. Salzberger. He's the publisher of the New York Times. We jammed a lot into this one. We talk about Trump, freedom of press, future of local news, uh, the future of the New York Times, and their subscription business. There's a lot jam-packed in here, and you are going to enjoy listening to it right now. Thank you for coming. I don't think you got to watch most of the show yesterday, right? I did not. So to recap, we talked about Trump and uh, the digital media platforms and how they're sort of straining to deal with the world. So are we um, done? Should, yeah, we're done. Should I, should I head out? Let's, so let's do Trump. Um, you spent some time with the President of the United States a couple times in the last year. That's right. Uh, last visit was January, or you were in the White House mm-hmm. conducting an interview? I wasn't. Um, two of my colleagues were conducting the interview. But you, you got up close and personal twice. That's right, yeah. Mr. Trump clearly uh, wants the approval of the New York Times, then spends a lot of time bashing it. Um, what do you think the real Trump is? Is, is, he, is he truly anti the Times and anti-press, or is that a show? I don't know if I feel particularly well-suited to play sort of pop you psychologist there. You know, what I will say is he's obviously a loyal reader. Um, of, of the, well, he is. He is. He, you know, um, you know, one of the things we've noticed is that we'll have a story online all day, and, um, and then the next morning when it hits print at 5.30 a.m., pretty much when the paper lands on the White House doorstep, it's when he's tweeting about it. So, so, I mean, he is a loyal reader. He has been his whole life. And, you know, referred, you know, in our conversation, as you, as you heard, which was recorded and we, we turned into a daily episode, you know, refers to the Times as my hometown paper, my paper. Um, he's referred to the Times variously as the crown jewel. Um, the first time we met, uh, our meeting ran uh, not just long, but very long. His secretary kept trying to grab him. And at some point he said, she said, a whole bunch of peop- important people have called. And he said, what could be more important than the New York Times? So, you know, that's his private posture. You know, his public posture is obviously to relentlessly attack our institution as, as failing, as fake news. Um, just, just last week or just this weekend, he... Um, he used the Stalinist label, enemy of the people, a label that was you know, so deemed so dangerous and used to justify the execution of so many 
dissidents in uh, the Soviet Union that Khrushchev banned it. And so he applied that to our institution. So that's obviously his, his public stance. Like, what's his, what's his real view? I mean, I think when you're the president of the United States, we need to, to um, take at your word. And his public approach is incredibly antagonistic to independent journalism. So when he describes the Times or any media as enemy of the people, fake news, there's sort of two camps. I think there's a big group of people now who sort of shrugs and says, yeah. either he doesn't mean it or we've heard this before, it's one of a million things he tweets. And there's a group of people, I think you're in this group, that is very concerned about that language. Yeah. Um, why, why does it matter to you and the newspapers of the world and, and media organizations of the world when he, yeah. he uses that kind of language? So what, what I told him the first time we met is he's, he's welcome to attack the New York Times by name. He's welcome to attack me by name. You know, we're grown-ups and we're big, we're solid, and we can take it. Um, what I'm really concerned about is the, the broader effect it's having on the sort of culture um, in the United States, a, you know, a country that, you know, where the freedom of the press and, and freedom of expression has always been among our most essential rights. And then, in particular, the incredibly dangerous climate that has been created abroad, where this has basically been, been read by dictators and tyrants around the world as legitimizing their own efforts to crack down on the press. And we've seen unprecedented numbers of attacks on journalists, harassment of journalists, imprisonment you, you of journalists. you tie that to the climate that you think he's helping create with that language? I do. I mean, I, I, just yesterday, while I was on, the, on the, the flight over here, I had been sort of wondering um, this one question and, and asked someone on my staff to pull together a little bit of research. And they were able to find, you know, just through a, a few hours of research, um, something like, don't quote me on the exact number, but something like 50 different countries where heads of state have used the phrase fake news, fake news, the president's phrase, to uh, justify various levels of crackdown on the press or just to delegitimize reporting on corruption um, or, um, or, or dangerous actions. And you know, the president in his meeting with me you know, he professed ignorance of all those effects. And the reason I was hitting on them is... And that's why you took the meeting, right? That's why I took the meeting. You wanted to talk to him about this specifically. Well, I also believe, just as a matter of course, that anyone, any, anyone who is constantly in the news where we are constantly covering, and covering quite aggressively, should deserve the right to, to raise some concerns about that coverage. He did not particularly um, raise concerns, but um, I was um, very interested in, in raising my concerns. But what we've just seen is, you know, these folks who, you know, again, you know, the reporters at the New York Times are operating in an increasingly difficult environment. That's true at the Washington Post, mm -hmm. Wall Street Journal, um, you know, and many other news organizations, local news organizations around the country. But abroad, there are all sorts of places in the world where people are literally putting their lives on the line in order to seek the truth and to help people understand their countries and their worlds. And the United States has been the foremost defender globally of those people for generations. And you know, in, in the last couple of years, that has reversed dramatically, and we've created a pretext for a, a crackdown on those people. So you bring this up to the President of the United States, it doesn't seem like it's had any effect. Um, do you think it registered with him? Well, you know, it obviously registered with him because 
you know, he was asking questions, he was engaging, he said, I didn't know that, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm upset to hear that, that's very troubling, um, stuff along those lines. Um, so it obviously registered with him. To me, the more important question is, so what did he do? Right. And what, what he did was he increased his attacks on, on journalism in a way that has these profound consequences uh, around the globe. And to me, it's, just, it's so dangerous and, and short-sighted. At some point, Donald Trump will not be president of the United States. Do you think this is something we can walk back, or do you think we've crossed over and we, we can't go backwards now? It's a really good question. I think globally, globally, I think we can we can reassert um, the role that we've always taken. Um, you know, I had a a um, Republican diplomat, a former ambassador, um, a, quite a prominent Republican, who pulled me aside after some talk I'd given and and told me that when he was working in a different Republican administration, I believe um, George H. W. Bush, that he had once been asked on stage by his counterpart, a head of state, you know, what do you think about the local press? And he had said, well, they don't always get the story right. And several members of the press grabbed him later and said, hey, hey look, like, that's gonna lead to a crackdown. Like, that's what he yeah. wanted to hear, the, the head of state. And the diplomat said it was, you know, this aha moment. And from then on, he made sure to always say, you know, while I may not always agree with everything they write, I'm, I'm grateful that you have people who are doing the hard work of trying to find the truth. So I do think that that's an example of how you can reassert that. Now, domestically, you know, I, I, you know we're not at the point where we're seeing, you know, although we're seeing increased, you know, increased violence for sure, we're not seeing the scale that you're seeing in swaths mm -hmm. of the Middle East and Asia and elsewhere. Domestically, to me, the, my bigger fear is, is the, not just the decline of trust in media, it's actually a polarization of trust in media. And we've gone from basically a five-point gap in trust in media that, that endured for most of modern, the modern history of the country between Republicans and Democrats. And now it's about a 60-point gap. That, I suspect, may endure for quite a while. And, and I, think it's, I think it's really troubling because what we do in media, in independent media, is not a Democratic ideal, is not a Republican ideal. It is an American ideal that not, not some of, but all of the Founding Fathers believed was a, you know, a fundamental precept of a society that aspired to governance. I want to make a, an awkward pivot into a business question, but it's, it's related. Um, you guys had, a, like many publications, had a Trump bump after his election. Your subscription surged. Um, there's clearly some part of your subscriber base that is paying you money, um, both because they're troubled by what's going on and, and as sort of a, a signal that, yep. that they want uh, the Trump administration held to account. How do you balance that with this desire that you've got to be an independent press and to appeal to Republicans and Democrats and all across the spectrum if you know that a big portion of your audience wants to read a certain kind of news, doesn't want to read a certain kind of perspective? Look, I actually think it's a great pivot because I think, I think there are two major threats facing media right now. One is what I've been talking about is the sort of the attacks on the press, yep. the dissolution of trust, and the second is, is the... Um, the corrosion of the business model that's that supported it. I think the Trump bump stuff is it, it was real, but I think it's also overblown. You know, we saw signs of that. You know, really 
petering off fairly dramatically just just months after after um, Trump was sworn in. And and quite frankly, since then we've seen all sorts of indication that people are really tired of reading about presidential politics and and reading about um, well, politics of any kind right now. So so we actually saw. Uh, readership of political coverage decline while we saw, um, you know, on a relative basis compared to non-political coverage. I mean, your subscriptions continue to climb. And our, and our subscriptions continue to climb. And so I actually believe that the, the approach that we're, we're trying to take is we believe we just live in really consequential times. And, and the Trump administration's part of that, but even, even there, he's a subset of the rise of global populism, right? Which we're seeing everywhere. And right now, like our, our daily team is in Europe this week and they're chronicling what's happening, you know, across country to country, country there on this front. So you've got global populism, you've got climate change, which we've, you know, tripled down on, really grown the team, doing a ton of coverage and really trying to experiment with different forms because it's a story that feels so familiar to people. So it's the type of story that people say they want to hear more of, but don't always engage. And we're trying to, um, to attack the story in different ways. Technology, right, which, you know, a big part of this, yep. this conversation has been about, you know, I think we've, we've expanded that team by a huge amount. We've made a bunch of big hires. We've um, really committed a ton of our investigative resources there because we think it's the story that's reshaping the entire world in real time. So you're playing catch up there? This is a story you should have pursued more aggressively a couple years ago or however many years ago? I mean, part of the reason we dug into it was, I remember I went out to Silicon Valley maybe two years ago now, probably right after I got named the next, next publisher. And, and I remember I was talking to you know, leaders across you know, a pretty big swath of um, technology and I asked every one of them like who, who's leading in tech coverage and no one had an answer to it and in particular what was really striking to me was the sense that most of the reporters covering technology didn't actually really understand it um, so it's it's a big part of why we've we've doubled down you and um, Kara Swisher just did a listing to her fairly recently right yeah. you went visited the heads yeah. of she's Silicon Valley's digital around. state. Yeah. She's, she's a good tour guide. Um, what's the, the biggest misconception that you see on, from the tech side um, when they talk about the press or the Times specifically? I mean, I think, I think some in the industry definitely think that the you know, institutions like the Times or the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post or, or you guys you know, are um, asking tough questions and producing you know, tough tough stories, you know, as retribution, you know, for the disruption of, um, of the news industry. And that, that obviously couldn't be farther from the truth. I mean, we we're just talking about, you know, this sort of model of independent journalism, which is following the truth wherever it leads. Um, right now, that's leading to a bunch of really important questions that are at the feet of the technology industry, and particularly the big platforms that have in incredible ways reshaped the world and are now discovering that that came, you know, not just with good, but with all sorts of negative consequences too that yeah, need to be addressed. We had a bunch of those discussions yesterday. But, you know, one of the, they'll say, you're, this is, you guys are trying to get back at us for disrupting yeah, the business. Yeah. Uh, another is you're doing it for clicks. Uh, one that I think is probably truthful is you're trying to get awards, right? That, that is actually a motivating factor for, for real working journalists. I mean, they like getting rewarded for their work. Look, n n no one doesn't like winning an award, but, but at the same time, you know, I think that that 
we're an institution that on our main bullhorn, right, so like nytimes.com, our app, you know, we will take a picture of a starving child in Yemen, the type of picture that no one on earth wants to look at, and we will put it on the top of our experience for 24 hours because we believe that the world shouldn't avert its eyes. So, you know, our model is not the model of, you know, Vox Media or a lot of other news organizations, or, you know, which is ad-based, click-based, traffic-based. Our model is subscription-based. And to me, what that means is you have to do stuff that is genuinely adding value. You have to be answering questions that no one else is talking about. And, and so I do, I do think that that model actually leads you to the best interest of the reader 99 times out of 100. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with A.G. Salzberger from The Code Conference. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Now we're back with A.G. Salzberger from The Code Conference. So you guys did make this successful pivot like a decade ago. There were real questions about what was going to happen at the time. You had to yeah. take a high-interest loan, and, and you changed your business model from an ad-based one to a subscription-based yeah. one. You're up to 4.5 million subs. You want to get to 10 million by 2025. Um, where, where's that next 5.5 million going to come from? Is that other people in the U.S.? Is this an international push? Yeah, I mean, look, we're, we're pushing in both places at the same time, and our international growth is slightly outpacing our, um, our or is outpacing our domestic growth, um, and we believe there's a lot of room for growth in both places. I mean, to me, I, I take a step back from, like, who are the specific populations. We've done a lot of demographic research, and we believe that there is a big swath of the world that feels like every component of modern life is basically about re-delivering the answer that you've already found, you know, about, about validating your views and your experiences. And that increasing swath of that population is feeling like they're spending their time being told half the truth, being shown half the world. And so, you know, of the, the unifying qualities of, like, what is different about a, a New York Times reader? Like, above any demographic difference, above any behavioral difference, the one is I like having ideas that challenge me. And so that's, that's what we're going for. You, know, you we want to be challenging. You don't want to be this challenged. Is, yeah. this, this is a point of view you're already familiar with. We're going to tell you more about it. We want you want to deliberately put something they didn't know, an idea they're, not, they're uncomfortable with. Or not necessarily even uncomfortable, but we, we want to cover the world. I mean, you know, if you know everything about politics, like, you know, we want to, want to tell you about tech and climate change and, you know, the deterioration of, you know, big swaths of the Middle East. Um, you know, if you lean one way politically, we want you to not, not so we can convince you to have a different view, we want to aid your effort 
at developing a deep understanding of what the world is and what what it, and how it works by helping you understand you know the breadth of the, the the political debate that's reshaping this country. So every newspaper, every publication, every magazine, many websites are trying now to put up a paywall to build their own subscription yep. service. There's a lot of talk about subscription fatigue, but it's it's bigger than that, right? Because there's a lot of folks who are trying to now build a direct to consumer business. All the TV companies that I write about, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, they all want your money. Spotify wants your money. Um, as you think about this next tier of subscribers, beyond just sort of intellectually challenging them and, and, and bringing them new experiences, what else can you do to convince them to shell out? What's, a, what's an average New York Times subscription right now? I think our, our like entry level subscription is $15 a month. It ramps way up. Yeah, exactly. Um, so what is the pitch to them other than we're going to intellectually challenge you? Because they have a finite amount of money and they're looking at Netflix and they're looking at Spotify and they're going to look at Disney Plus, et cetera. Yeah. Look, I think this is, this is going to be a big challenge for everyone in our industry is, is looking at that sub-growth. For us, our, our model is often described as a subscription-first model. And that is definitely and technically accurate. Um, the way I describe it inside the newsroom and in, to our product teams and to our design teams and to our technology teams is that we make journalism worth paying for in an environment of free alternatives. And to be worth paying for in an environment of free alternatives, you have to, you have to really be obsessed on adding value. So the most obvious answer there is our newsroom is bigger than it's ever been. We're at 1,600 journalists. You know, that is a historic peak for us. And we have, you know, those journalists deployed all over the world. You know, many of them have deep, deep levels of expertise in the areas they cover. And, and to me, that's the model, right? It's, you know, subscriptions, you know, look, there are all sorts of technical things about how you run a subscription platform. But I also think that people overlook the essential thing, which is what is the value you are providing to your user, to your so subscriber? You've got a huge newsroom, a huge brand. Yeah. Um, this is working well for you. It's working well for the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal. It doesn't seem to be working at all for any smaller papers, essentially. Dean Bacay, your executive editor, says something effective. I think most of the local papers in the U.S. are going to go away in five years. First of all, do you think that's true? Well, I mean, I think... Dean's also talking, his hometown paper, the Times-Picayune, um, is going away. So, I mean, it's... Um, so what's, so what's the solution? A, Facebook and Google have both said, we're going to spend $300 million. They both came to that sum yeah. somehow on their own. Um, and we're going to help try to fix uh, local journalism. Is, is that going to help? What's, what's a reasonable solution for local journalism? I don't have a clear answer. I think it is a, a tragedy is unfolding that will have significant and perhaps dire consequences for our, the health of our society, particularly at the community and state level. You know, we're seeing, we've seen more than half of all journalists lose their jobs since the year 2000. And the, the, the number that always strikes me is that that is in absolute terms and in percentage terms, a bigger job loss than coal miners in that period. And, and that's a very practical thing that's happening, which is communities are no longer being covered. And um, so what's the, what's the solution to that? I think we, we have to find some sort of sustainable model. I, I, you know, it's good. I, I suppose that Google and Facebook are putting some money into this, but we've just seen that experiment tried in Europe and they burn through the money, and there's still a broken model. And honestly, you know, $300 million sounds like a lot of money until you divide it by 
50 states, and until you divide 50 states by X number of cities, and until you divide that by you know, smaller communities, and or number of city services and city agencies that demand coverage. And we're describing a world where the market's not providing the journalism yeah. that, that we think we need. Uh, you've got a handful of rich, rich people who occasionally dip into this and, and yeah. experiment with it. Um, technology companies are playing around the edges. None of this seems to be working. Is there a role for government to help support journalism? I don't believe so. I mean, I think I think just just the current context of you know government relationship with with media and the type of rhetoric that we're seeing yep. you know shows the dangers of that path. But can I say one thing on on local journalism, which is I actually think I think that the platforms have had a really profound blind spot. And it's about the word journalism itself, um, which has been encompassing. And I think I think there has been this premium on innovation in journalism, you know, and making your journalism digital. And I think we're actually losing losing track of like what what is the core ingredient that we actually care about in journalism? What is the thing that matters here? The thing that our founders worried about? The thing that um, you know those of us who use phrases like you know, hold power to account and bear witness are actually talking about, and it's reporting. And the thing that's disappearing, not just at the local level, but even at the national level to some degree, is reporting resources. And that's because reporting is way more expensive than other forms of journalism. Other forms I mean, of journalism- making a phone call, asking someone a question? Yeah, making a phone call, asking, going to the place, suing the government for documents, reading all those documents, you know, finding you know people who can leverage their expertise to help you understand and see the things that you might not be able to see in those documents. A good story, you know, can take weeks, months. Um, you know, in the case of our Pulitzer Prize-winning series on uh, the president's finances, it took basically two years of work and hundreds of thousands of documents and hundreds of interviews to get to to, to this information that was not in the public space. And there's another form of journalism that just sort of repurposes. It reads that story and says, here are 10 takeaways of that series. There's some value I, to that. There is value in it. And, and I won't, and, I, and, and we will do that sometimes. We're actually, we did it for our own series. You know, aggregate your own stuff. We're doing a bit of that. And then there's another form of journalism, commentary, which is like, here's why this is a big deal, or here's why this isn't a big deal at all. That also can add a lot of value, right? We do that every day with our columnists. But someone example. has to make the news first. But it all is downstream of reporting. And that, that is the thing that is most fragile in the ecosystem. I'll just give you one example, which is so, just so telling and troubling. I had, I had flagged basically this concern for Google. And, and, and I have this concern, particularly at the local level, um, where you know, those, those investments of reporting resources really do need to be rewarded by, um, by what platforms point to. But so we do this major, um, tax investigation. We have exclusive documents and exclusive sources. No one's able to match it, right? So it's, you know, right now the New York Times has spent, you know, two years. It's your story. We have gotten this story to the world. And Google alerted the story. God bless them. It was a big deal. This story is a big deal, and Google alerted them. They alerted CNN's version. So even the New York Times has some issues with, with aggregation <laughs> and Google. Um, you're not alone. We are time-pressed, so we're going to do one really fast question. So whoever gets the microphone first gets it. Oh, great. 
Hi, Neff Hudson from USAA. Uh, you eliminated the public editor position in 2017. Could you explain the reasoning behind that and uh, your reaction to the news today that CJR is appointing a public editor for you? Yeah, I, so I, I just saw the news about CJR. I actually think, I, th I think it's great and I think it, um, it really underscores the point that we, that we made when we eliminated the public editor, which is um, that there are all these organizations, you know, the, the internet lacks for all sorts of things. It does not lack for media critics. But, to, and, to, but just to be yeah. clear, right, the, the public editor role was one that you guys funded. You said we're gonna pay for a journalist yep. to sit in our newsroom but yep. not be accountable to us, and their yep. job is to critique us and to report on us, and then we'll publish what they write yep. in, 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 in our paper. You guys got rid of that and basically said, everyone else can handle this. So, so yes, so, so we got rid of it, the Washington Post got rid of it, CNN got rid of it, there's, uh, I think I just read that there's only one um, public editor left, it's at, at NPR. In our view, the environment changed really considerably. At the time when we appointed the public editor, you know, the Washington Post, you know, may have had, you know, one media reporter instead of five. You know, CGR wasn't devoting a huge section of its, its coverage, you know, to directly focusing on the New York Times. You know, Neiman Lab doing the same. You Sounds guys like you're suggesting the there's a glut of media reporting. What I'm saying is... Worrisome for me. What I'm saying is I don't, I don't think that at any point there has been a question of whether or not there are enough institutions that can hold the New York Times to account um, for the questions around its coverage. And, um, and I think that's really important, and we're glad that those reporters are out there, but I also think that that's a less fundamentally less compromised model. I mean, than paying someone yourself to, um, you know, to ostensibly weigh in independently. Lots of people don't, don't agree, but I, I think what CJR did seems great. I, I think it's a very good idea what they're doing. Um, I want to figure out some way to extend this conversation. We'll figure out maybe there's a podcast in our future. We'll, we'll put it together. Thank you for coming. Great, great. Thank it. you. Thanks. Thanks again to A.G. Salzberger for joining us at the Code Conference. Thanks to everyone else who joined us at the Code Conference. Thanks to you guys for listening. Um, there's a lot of good conversations from Code coming to you in the very near future and a lot of good conversations that I'm recording back in New York. You are going to enjoy them. We will see you soon.